we've been talking in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, um, what is happening at this point in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is starting to teach things and do things uh, that are actually kind of dangerous for him. Uh, he is setting himself up to have people oppose him in such a violent way that they actually seek his death. They actually want him put to death because of what he's doing uh, to the religious and economic and social power structure uh, in his teachings and in his actions. So uh, when we're reading this, in, in the last few weeks we we talked about Jesus healed a guy who was uh, mute and, and deaf from uh, a demon that the guy had. And Jesus healed the guy. And then the religious structure, the power authority, or they're kind of like political parties today, but they're religious parties, um, were actually accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. Uh, and this is kind of the talk that's going around uh, about Jesus. And then this week, we're going to read through this uh, section of scripture. And then I want to talk a bit about um, kind of the context that it was in originally. And then I want to talk about what it means for us today, if that's all right. Um, uh, I, th I think it, this section of scripture, it's about family. And it's really, really easy to hijack this kind of a scripture and, so, and, and just kind of make it say what you want to say. You know how some scripture can be treated like a horoscope that way. Um, and we're going to try to actually look at what Jesus was saying in his original context uh, and why it's dangerous in his original context and then why it's dangerous, actually, if Jesus was here today, why we would get him in trouble for saying the things he said. Um, and I want to talk about one awkward situation that Jesus created. <laughs> That's, it's really, really good. Um, so I'm going to read this together and then we'll talk about the awkward situation first see if you can pick it up um, Jesus is standing there he just healed this guy he's got his opponents there his disciples there are watching this is if you can picture this in the room okay so while he's still speaking to the people large crowd of people in this building uh, behold his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him but he let me let me stop because I missed one thing you see the verses there 46 and 48 uh, it's not because we're bad at counting. Uh, we have a manuscript of the Bible which has verse 47, and then archaeologically we've found an older one that is reliable that omits verse 47. So if you have a Bible, verse 47 isn't in there. It's down here at the bottom, all right, because we have older ones. And the, the verse 47 says, A man said to Jesus, uh, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking for you. So it's not significant theologically. It's not like uh, something big. So that's omitted. Uh, so if you're a critic of the Bible, this is a good place for you to say that we're just full of it and stuff, but we're not. Um, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, Jesus, uh, sorry, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Verse 48, but he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And after stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All right, awkward situation moment. And, and this, it's okay if you want to giggle at this. Jesus' disciples are 12 guys, right? And he stretches out his hand towards his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. And knowing the disciples, there was an argument later over who the mother was, right? <laughs> We're all brothers, but you, you're a mother. <laughs> there you go. Um, so uh, if you don't picture that in your head, you just go right by that and be like, yeah, Jesus is talking. It's so nice. But Jesus actually referred to, and the disciples enjoyed arguing amongst themselves. Apparently, we read in other parts of scripture. So uh, no doubt there was a little fight. Maybe it's still going on in heaven and they just tease each other that way but 
Jesus speaks this thing where his parents are outside, or his mom, sorry, is outside, and his brothers. Uh, his father isn't mentioned. Uh, most scholars think that at, by this point, uh, Jesus' earthly dad, Joseph, uh, was dead. Um, the men would usually be a lot older than the woman in a marriage relationship in the culture that Jesus grew up in. And so that's a plausible theory. Maybe he wasn't, maybe he was. If he was, uh, Jesus carried some responsibility as the eldest in the family. Um, social responsibility when the father dies. And we experience this on a much smaller scale in our culture. Uh, if you're an oldest son and your father dies, you bear a little bit of that responsibility. You feel that. If in, even if you're not an eldest son, even if you're an eldest daughter or you're just a child and your parents pass away, there's a sense of responsibility if one parent passed away to care for the other parent and those kinds of things. And So in their culture, Jesus had some responsibilities. And so his mother, Mary... Uh, who we all know that is is there, and Jesus' brothers are out there. Um, and you can read in verse 55 of chapter 13, it actually says, Is this not the carpenter's son? So Joseph, is, his mother not, is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So Jesus, the, we hear what Jesus' brothers' names are. And really, we would say they are half-brothers, because Jesus is father wasn't Joseph. It was kind of like his adoptive father. Uh, and so, but these boys would have been, their father would have been Joseph. And there's different traditions. Uh, if you grew up Catholic, they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. And so these brothers would all be older than Jesus from Joseph's previous marriage and stuff like that, which is a good way to, you know, you have to do some theological gymnastics to hold on to some weird theologies that you've got there. But um, Jesus' family is standing there. And in Jesus' culture, family was radically significant. Um, and so when Jesus is saying this, it's almost cavalier. It's almost disrespectful. And if you were Jesus' mother and Jesus' brother, you understood that Jesus bore a cultural responsibility to what was going on. And imagine if the oldest brother in your family and now they're adults Jesus is 31, 32 at this time when they're talking to Jesus he's doing things that are getting him in trouble with the political and religious powers of the day and so when you read about this story in other gospels it seems like they're kind of trying to calm Jesus down like let's, real, let's bring him home Let's get a hold of him and let's talk some sense into Jesus. And you can imagine if your brother was going around telling everyone that he was the son of God. You know, the brother who you messed around with as a kid. Your older brother who pulled pranks on you, right? And now he's going around telling everyone, I'm the son of God. Kind of an awkward situation. And in Jesus' culture, family was, was a social responsibility that Jesus apparently was pushing aside. He wasn't responding to his mother and his brothers. And Jesus does this more than once. But when he does this, he's also changing the definition of his identity. Which, here's what that means. If you were a Jewish person growing up in the time of Jesus, you understood yourself to be significant on earth because of who your father was and your father's father and your father's father's father. When you read at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, there's a long list of this person's dad was this, was this, was this, was this, all the way back. 
And if I can trace my lineage, then I can show that I am part of the chosen group. And my identity is that I'm better than the outsiders because I'm one of the insiders. And they wouldn't... Um, yeah, they would. They actually had derogatory terms for people who were outsiders. Like it was a... It, we would call it racism, and they would call it God's will. Because they were chosen because of who their family was. We often talk about how in Christianity you're not born. Like, just because your parents are Christian doesn't mean that you're naturally just going to fall into the faith. Like, you can't, you don't show up in heaven and tell Jesus, oh, I went, my parents made me go to church, so can I get in? It's all based on your own personal relationship. In the Jewish system, it's based on who your parents were. And if you followed that custom, and if you were built into being part of the chosen people, the preferred people, the people who God was working with and revealing himself to. Now, when you read in like Genesis chapter 12, where God actually has a conversation with Abraham, he actually talks about, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to bless the earth. And a lot of times, just like us, you take the part that's good for you, and you forget about the part that's for everyone else. God says, I'm going to bless you so that we can bless the whole world through you. And we say, right on. I heard him say, bless me. And then he kept talking, but I was so busy thinking about how he can bless me. <laughs> and so the Jewish people over thousands of years have done what every other group of humans did. They forgot their role in God's redemptive plan and remembered their preferred status in God's redemptive plan. This is... Christians today, people of God, people who follow Jesus, forgetting that signing up for Christianity isn't about you. It's actually changing your life so it's no longer about you, but it's about everyone else that's around you. The church in its most beautiful form exists as an organization or an organism that exists for the benefit of the community that it exists in, especially the benefit of the community that doesn't participate. If you ask the average person, if we put a church in your neighborhood, would it make your neighborhood better? The answer is no, right? It's going to screw up parking on Sundays. You're going to have teenagers walking around. You're going to have uh, homeless people coming down to get stuff from that church, right? It's going to mess up our neighborhood. The traffic on Sunday is going to be annoying, right? Uh, you're, the building's going to be ugly. The people don't tip at the restaurants afterwards, right? because they're all cheap, because they gave all their money in the offering. Um, <laughs> the, uh, when, when what should be happening, when the church is operating in its most beautiful form, the community should be able to recognize that it's fantastic for a church to move into its neighborhood. Meaning, the more churches, more, the more effective, gospel-oriented, mission-minded churches that we have in Albany, or the better it is for Albany. Not the better it is for the church. The better it is for Albany. But for a long time, churches have worked off of demographic studies as far as how can we get, go into this community and get people to come to our thing. Instead of uh, thinking, and we pushed really hard on this in the growth, uh, instead of thinking, how can we bless the community here? 
When we talk about buildings at the Grove, our constant refrain, and, and it's only Christians who ever ask us about buildings. Non-Christians don't understand why we need a building so bad. Um, Non-Christians and people who've been on building committees at churches are all like, no, we don't want a building, <laughs> right? Um, but when we think of if we ever bought a piece of property and put a building on it, our refrain is, we're going to build something that would bless the community around it. Like, what does the community around it need? Not what do we need from that community. What does the community need? And so we look, and the community needs, uh, like, gym space. The community needs meeting space. The community needs those kinds of parks. That, what would make our town better? Does that make sense? It's a different way of thinking. But for a long time, the church has fallen into a preferred status. Being a part of the church was beneficial. And now we're going through this rapid cultural transition uh, here in America, it's remarkable how quick the church is going from a preferred status to a secondary status or a ignorant status. Um, and just the dynamic of all the things that Jesus is talking about in this passage are changing at a rapid rate. But when Jesus, in the original context, when Jesus makes this statement, who are my mother and my brothers? I'll tell you who, these people right here who are doing the will of God, it's actually a dangerous statement for him to say because he's actually saying... It doesn't matter who my mother and father are in an earthly sense because my salvation is not dependent on God's preferred status or not. Because God is doing something outside of the boundaries that you have. Jesus is placing himself with the outsiders. And the correct response, if you're one of his disciples, is to turn him into the authorities. Because he's going against what their understanding of what the Bible teaches. Jesus is giving them permission to be more aggressive against him. Now, think about our culture today. Uh, if you think about family structure in our culture today, we've had this radical shift in 50 years where the, the nuclear traditional family, uh, and you can turn on the TV or you can Google families under attack, and you'll find all sorts of uh, fear-based uh, websites that are terrifying to you, right? That if uh, we let two men get married, God will end the history of the world, all right? Like, he's just going to open up and everything whoosh, sucked in, it's over. Uh, the, the, if you look at things like popular sitcoms, the sitcom that won uh, this year for the Emmy Award for being the best show on television, it's called Modern Family, right? And it's a redefinition of what family is. And it's not prescriptive. It's descriptive. It's not, here, we're going to shove this on you. It's, look at the world. If you work in any kind of a capacity with young people today, half the young people you work with don't come from anything near what we would call a traditional family structure. If you coach your kids' little league teams or your grandkids' little league teams or sports teams, half of those parents aren't in what you would call a traditional family structure. Actually, let's back that up. If we think about our church here together today, a large percent of, percentage of us, our experience growing up, and now our experience as adults, isn't a traditional, conservative expression of what family is. Families changed from being who you share a last name with to who you're closest to. 
And you can see this expressed in a lot of different ways. And, and I'm not, we can beat this drum for a long time. Um, but uh, go, back, uh, go back in time and you would find that marriage was a lifelong commitment. And now we have a, an, an increased ease of divorce because you can change your family structure by preference. And now we've, we're moving into an era where you can change your family structure outside of even gender preferences. In our country, people can do those things. And so the family, or what family is, you don't get any more to say, or if you're a teacher, to just naturally, just you can't give a math problem with a normal, traditional family in it. Like, uh, we had four people in our family, one was bad, so we kicked them out. Uh, how many left now, right? <laughs> but that, that would be a bad math problem. But just having, having a mom and a dad... You can't just send notes home that say, Dear Moms and Dads, because maybe there isn't a mom. Maybe there isn't a dad. Maybe there isn't either. Maybe it's grandparents. Maybe it's aunts and uncles, right? Because family structures aren't what they used to be. And so the family dynamic has changed as well to where your loyalty to your family, whereas Jesus, his saying this would be incredibly dangerous, us saying this, not dangerous at all. Turning your back on your family structure isn't seen as a social faux pas at all in our culture. If you have experienced a family disintegration or experienced a family where somebody leaves, or maybe in your, this is your experience, that your family growing up was unacceptable to you and so you've chosen a new family. That's, nobody looks down on that. I'm not saying we should or shouldn't. I'm saying this is how it is. In our world, the structure of family has changed very, very quickly. And so when Jesus says something like, who are my mother and my brothers? We would say, well, I, I don't see the rebellion in this at all. Like he's a 32-year-old man. He should be able to walk away from his mother and his brothers, right? Like if you're 32 and your mom's still controlling you, then we think you have a problem, Right? Or your mother-in-law. Don't laugh, but <laughs> some of you are going to have conversations after. Um, but there is, we don't, in our society, this isn't nearly as dangerous as in Jesus' society. When Jesus is saying this, uh, we hear this and we're like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably closer with people who are on board with Jesus than I am closer with those other people. Now, if you think about the people who are actually close to you, and maybe that is your family, maybe that is the people who share your DNA, when Jesus throws out your real family is now the people who do the will of God, that gets really awkward if you have blood relations who don't follow Jesus. Because they're, according to the scripture, Jesus wouldn't consider them your family. Now, now it's getting harsh, right? Like I have a brother or a sister or a mom or a dad or kids who are refusing God, who are in active disobedience to Him, who maybe even know of the love of God and have refused to respond to it. All of a sudden that gets really harsh. Because we love them. 
And Christians tend to respond to this in awkward ways, right? Like some Christians will create isolationist communities where if, if you're not in our religion, you have to leave, right? This is the good old Amish way. You go do Rumspringer, which is where they can go and try out living in the world, and you either choose world or you choose come back to our family. And if you choose world, don't bother coming back. It's a weird, like, misinterpretation of the scripture because when Jesus is talking, he's talking with a bunch of people that aren't a part of the kingdom of God. He's talking to the Jewish religious authorities who oppose what Jesus is doing. Jesus hangs out with people who are outside of bounds all the time. All the time. And so if we start saying, well, then we need to isolate ourselves. Like, if you're in our family and you don't follow God, you're, we're not going to hang out with you. We're not going to go to your house for Christmas. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. But what does happen in this, in this context is Jesus actually refers to a bond that is deeper and defining based on one's relationship with God. Here's what, here's what that means. And especially if you're here and you're single uh, and looking. <laughs> I encourage young people to marry and I'll encourage my kids to marry people who also follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus and you marry someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and you can talk. We have people in our church who this is their experience as adults. There's something that is the most defining thing in your life that you don't share with the person you love the most. And it becomes this awkward tension. And it's an experience. And so we encourage young people, if you want to follow Jesus, marry someone who wants to follow Jesus. Uh, it seems simple but when I was in youth group it seemed limiting there were two girls in my youth group and neither one of them were appropriate right <laughs> so I had to go to camp <laughs> and it worked <laughs> but let me tell you <laughs> that's how I met Heather it's fantastic <laughs> so, but, so I encourage camps I encourage taking a year at Christian college I don't even care if you don't learn anything Hey, don't go to class. Meet girls, all right? Meet boys. Uh, this is, I think it's biblical. Go ahead. So, uh, <laughs> and this, I'm, I know it sounds funny, but I really do. I'm telling my kids that. I'm like, all right, any girls in your youth group? No, all right. Any other youth groups? No, all right, we're going to camp. So, uh, wear some deodorant. All right, so, <laughs> this is, it's simple, you know. Because you know those girls are at camp because there's no appropriate boys in their youth group. So, all right. When, when we talk about who our family is, it's the people that hold the deepest bonds with us. And so when Jesus is talking about who holds the deepest, most defining bonds with him, he refers to the people who are doing the will of God. Not to the people who happen to have the same last name as him. And the longer you follow Jesus, or the more all in you are with Jesus, the more true you will find this. Even in just awkward conversations, where people will be talking about something that they value, and you're like, I don't value that at all. And it becomes awkward because you're not, because what you're interested in is Jesus' love being expressed in the world. What you're interested in is making disciples of all nations, of sharing the gospel. And, and they all have entire relationships built on college football. 
And, and I could not possibly care less. And I love college football. It's hilarious. But when you, when you have and the deepest part of your relationship is based on something that doesn't matter, all of a sudden you're like, it gets awkward. And you start to feel that. Like the people that I feel closest to are the people who are on board, who are down with the will of God and doing the things that I dream of doing with my life. Not just the people that I happen to talk to. And that might be in my family, it might be out of my family. So when Jesus talks about this, it becomes really dangerous. For us, it becomes defining in a culture where definition is supposed to be a self-preference. Jesus' definition pushes onto our self-preferences. Where he actually says, your family is the people who do the will of God. So, implications of this. Jesus cuts, first of all, at our identity. And if you're here for the first time, um, I'm in America on a green card. I'm from Canada. And, uh, you know, you can clap later. But... uh, So I'm going to say this, and then you can be offended by it. If we define ourselves primarily by our national identity, primarily, if the deepest, most important part of us is our national identity, then we're missing the boat on what Christianity is. That means, if the coolest thing about me is that I'm from a country who puts an old lady in England on their money, then there's nothing important about me. Because nationalism rises and falls. Empires that used to be aren't anymore. And the empire that we're a part of someday won't be anymore. You can yell blasphemy later or send me a nasty email. I'm good with that. Someday I'm going to get my citizenship because it's easier than renewing my green card. Because I care so much about my citizenship. But uh, that really, for a person... And and this becomes true for me because I'm Canadian. And that's a big deal because I come from the best country on earth. I know you might have a different opinion, but uh, that's because you're not Canadian, right? And and if you talk to pretty much any person from any country, you know why you're that? Because you happen to be born there. Like for the majority of us, you were born there. I chose to live here. I love it more than you do. But (laughs) there is, you know what I mean? Like the difference between you and a person who lives on the other side of the world is the chance that you happen to be born in a place that isn't there. And someday our empires will fall. And so if that happens, for the Christian, like, I don't don't understand. Like we'll care because we care. But if it destroys us, if the prosperity of a nation is linked to the prosperity of the gospel, then we're missing what the gospel is. Now, that's an easy one. But if you push back further, push back to who your family is. Because who you are is probably a selection of who your parents were. If you're young, this is the bad news. I'm turning into my dad, right? You're turning into your mom and your dad. Sorry. That's just the way it's going to happen. Because you have DNA, you have personalities, you have experiences, and I'm sure there's some bad parts of your parents that you're not going to be. And my kids would say the same thing. But when 
you are raised in a family and you become that, it is easy for that to be define who you are. We are Carmichael's. We have a long and significant history. We have a participation in the world in a significant way. We have a Spike Lee movie about the Carmichael's. It's called Crooklyn. It's fantastic. And you've never seen it, but you should. All Carmichael's have seen it. Uh, there is, you know, but if that is who I am, then am I, I'm identifying myself by something that isn't Jesus. Then I'm saying, who I am is defined by a name that's on a piece of paper or a particular history. Whether that history has been good or bad, you've been defined by this. And it's so easy to fall into that. And what redemption is in Jesus is actually a redemption of, our, of who we are. And we participate in family structures. We participate in national structures. Like, well, I'm not saying you shouldn't sing the song or say the pledge. Go ahead and do that. But for Christians, every earthly structure falls under the authority of Christ. So that the day that our earthly structure prompts us to move or act or think in a way opposed to the gospel, we no longer show it any loyalty at all. At all. This is why Christians around this world are suffering. And let me say this. Uh, about a month ago, uh, there was a church in a Muslim-dominated country. Uh, I believe it was Pakistan. And they were singing the benediction in a large church. A couple hundred people. And a couple strangers walked in uh, wearing suicide vests and killed uh, a little less than a hundred people in the room as they were singing the benediction at the end of the service. Christians. And they were killed because they were Christians. For Christians, this is a moment when our brothers and sisters, our mothers and fathers, were killed just because they're related to us. Were killed just because they were related to Jesus. And we have an extremely polarized world to where you know, there's an organization called Voice of the Martyrs. You can write that down and Google that later. A martyr is someone who dies as a witness. Um, they die for their faith. And there were more people who died for their Christian faith in the 1900s, the last 100 years, than the previous 1900 years combined. That's the world we live in. We live in a world, we don't experience this because of where we live, and the, and the freedom, and it's so incredibly awesome, the freedom that we experience here. We, ex we don't experience what the majority of Christians on this planet experience. And when we get to heaven, we'll be this small group of people who had this weird experience of Christianity where it was free and allowed. And then there'll be this other group that experienced a lot more like what Jesus experienced. Opposition. Violent opposition. And when we feel or we hear or we see on CNN this news, it should hurt in a significant way. The same way it hurts when we have um, mass murders here in the United States. It hurts because those people are us. When there's flooding or when there's wildfires, it hurts because those people are us. 
And it's not just in the United States. When, there was, when there's mass violence on the other side of the world, a caring person feels that because they're just like us. They're mothers and their fathers, their brothers and their sisters. But in the Christian community, we feel that in a way that's different. It's a tragedy just that humans died. But then there's an attachment to that tragedy because these people are who we are. We feel what they feel. To the point that these people and their well-being is prioritized over our own well-being. Because isn't that what family is? Isn't that what good parenting is? When your kids take priority over yourself? And the funny thing is, that attitude of good parenting continues your whole life. You talk to someone who's a grandparent or a great-grandparent, and their priority in their life is those who are behind them, not themselves. It just continues. That's why you're a parent until the day you die, if you're a parent. And there's that connection in living for someone else. That's what family is. And when Jesus redefines family, then the structure of our church, the structure of our Christianity, our expression of Christianity, begins to benefit others more than it benefits ourselves. And it actually, if we are a family, then if there are people in this world who are suffering for their Christianity, we act upon it. Now, we live in a country that will actually help us act upon it. Like when we... Uh, like soldiers from our country are going to Muslim-dominated areas and starting to establish peace there. That's fantastic. That's gospel-oriented. Isn't it? And it sounds nationalistic and stuff like that, but that's a place where our country, and I don't want to get into a debate over pacifism because we're not going to hijack this scripture, Um, but in the way that we think we're doing the best that we possibly can do, we want to bring peace on earth. And we want to bring safety and care to the people who are in our family. It hurts in a particular way. Second implication, not just our identity. The second implication of what Jesus talks about is our actual relation to other people in relationship to who God is. When we, there's a saying in our culture, it's called uh, church shopping. Uh, and, and it's hilarious. I have to not... People will visit. If you're here for the first time and you're church shopping, tell me later, hey, we're shopping for a new church and see if I can hold in my laughter. Because it's the most ungospel thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Imagine going up to Jesus and saying, I'm shopping. While you're on that cross, I'm shopping. I'm thinking about following you. How, what kind of programs do you have for my kids? And, and you're like, well, you're getting blood on me, Jesus. I'm going to go check out this other religion. You're like, I don't... <laughs> you walk into a church. This is church shopping, right? And, and if you're church shopping, you're probably not going to come back because you think I'm a lunatic. But um, church shopping is walking in. You grab a program and you go, so what do they have for me here? Can you... And to think about Jesus is redefining family. You're walking into a family and saying, so what do you have for me here? Like, what, how is my week going to go? Because there's this other family that meets across the street, and they have this, and they have, their chairs are padded. They actually are way more comfortable. All right? That's why I preach every week. It's uncomfortable, so I might as well stand. Um, but when, 
there, what, what do you have for me, family? Because the family next door has cable, and, and we're using this old antenna. So I think I might try that family out. Unless they turn out to be whack jobs, I might come back to this family later. This has happened at the Grove. Just crazy. Uh, I'm going to come to the Grove for a while, then I'm going to leave and go try this other thing out, but it wasn't as good as I thought it was, so I'm going to come back to the Grove. What? <laughs> like, it, it's just so awkward if you view church as family. Because I promise, if you have a family, at some point you don't like them. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's going to happen. And the reason that you're a family is that you stick together even though you don't like each other. And chances are, if you think of the church of the family, you're going to dislike me. And it's awesome. You're going to send me an email, and I'm leaving, and you suck, and you're going to say it in a nicer way, and you're going to hurt my feelings and rip my heart out and throw it on the floor. That's family. Right? And when we think about this, and I know you're going to church out. I know I'm not going to stop this thing because it's this weird cultural thing that exists. But if you're in a church and it's your family, at some point expect that there's someone in that family you're not going to like. There's someone who's going to be in the bathroom too long and it's driving you crazy. Right? There's someone who's going to touch your stuff. There's someone who's going to do something that you don't appreciate at all. And then you know, oh, this is a family. Oh, this is, this is supposed to be my experience of church. Because this is my experience of family. Because if the family of God is a group of people that are gathered together, that what we have in common is Jesus, then I promise there's going to be stuff that we have in, like, not in common that drives each other crazy. That's why I can say funny things about America and you can be offended. And you can make fun of Canada on Facebook and I can forward it to the Queen and take appropriate action. You know? <laughs> there is... <laughs> I'm actually a fan of the Queen on Facebook, so don't think I'm not doing that. But, <laughs> but this is the whole point. This is the whole point of being a part of a church family is that I'm a part of a group that I'm not always like. I'm a part of something that's not about me. It's about serving the other people in this group. That's what, honestly, that's what Christian maturity in a church is. Immaturity is I'm going to choose a new family, right? That's immaturity. Whether you're a child or a teenager or even an adult, maturity is... I'm going to get over myself and I'm going to serve people. And when we express immaturity, it hurts other people in a radical way. If you think about your family, like your actual blood family, and some of you have had your families fall apart, it hurts. It really, really, really does. Or maybe you're in the middle of that. Or maybe it's recent. And it's terrible. And then if we think that Jesus compares the group of Christians, the people who are doing the will of God, to family, then our experience of church is different. We have, a, and we have an advantage here. We don't have a building. We don't have a, what, uh, we don't have a church. 
We never say welcome to church. And if you read the Bible, it's impossible to go to church because you are the church. So you are always at church. So we have, we have this advantage that nobody says, I'm going to the church, right? You can't say that. But the church exists in the community that we are to the point where we live for each other. And we express that when we care for each other, when we love each other even though our preferences are different. There are people, well let me, I'm going to share this and then I'm going to end. Um, this church was planted four years ago out of a church called South Albany Community Church. And there's this old, old guy named Gene who goes to South Albany Church. And he was a part of starting the church, like South Albany. We had these big meetings over starting the church. It's kind of a fun story for our anniversary. Big meetings, you know, everyone's like, oh, some people are happy to get rid of James. Other people are nervous, you know, and, and these kinds of things. Uh, it's, it's kind of an awkward deal. Gene speaks. And Gene is not down with uncomfortable chairs. He's an old guy. Gene is not down with the kind of music we do. It would, it would probably affect his health. <laughs> like. But what he wants more than anything is to add people to the kingdom of God. And when he spoke and he supported the idea of planting a church, all he cared about was, is it going to reach more people? It was going to make it uncomfortable for him. Right? Like when a hundred and some people left that church, it affects things like their budget or who's going to volunteer in the nursery. It, it just does. And yet here's this guy who says, it's going to affect me. Like maybe we won't have as many pastors and so they won't be able to visit me or something like that. But in my life, I want to live for someone else. And so now we've had hundreds of people come to know Jesus or come to understand Christianity in a meaningful way in the grove because a bunch of people preferred family over their own personal comfort. And it's not like this just happens one time at South because at some point somebody started that church from the downtown First Evangelical and that was even messier than ours. It's hilarious. It was like 55 years ago though so they're mostly dead. <laughs> But when they really actually are. But, but then that first church downtown was started by someone. And that church was started by someone. And it all was started by Jesus and 12 guys. And then it ended up being 11. Who just went and said, we're going to live for someone other than ourselves. And that's going to be our expression of what family is. You can take this as some kind of weird plea. The pastor's going crazy because people are leaving our church. Right? And that's not what this is. <laughs> People leave our church all the time. All the time. The majority of the time because of something I said. And it's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's really, really awkward to be the one who talks all the time in your family while everyone else gets to be safe. <laughs> but when we're a family, I want you to know that if you're a part of the Grove, the expectation is that you're here for everyone else. When you come to church and you say, that was great for me. Then we're like, oh, okay. But if you say, that was great because I had an opportunity to serve all these other people, then you get what the Grove is. That's family. You don't think your family's awesome because of what you get out of it. You think your family's awesome because of the opportunity you get to influence others and serve and share with other people. That's Grove. And at some point, if you're here at the Grove, 
there was going to be someone who you just don't get along with. You're like, they are in left field. Like, how did they vote for that guy? And because you're family, you're going to have them over, and you're not going to try to convince them. You're going to be family. You're going to be in the same life group. You're going to hang out. Your kids are going to grow up, and because you want them to get married to other Christians, they're going to get married. You're going to be connected forever. (laughs) Right? Because what defines us isn't our preferences. What defines us in spiritual maturity is Jesus. So this sermon probably isn't for today. It's probably for that someday. For next week or the week after or for last week or a month ago. And we want to encourage you to act and feel and understand that this is your family. And we're here to support each other and we're here to help each other. And at some point you're going to need help And at some point, I'm going to need help. And we're going to live together in different houses, but with the defining thing about us being Jesus. So let's stand, and we're going to pray together, all right? And we actually pray together because of our unity. We don't just pray our own prayers, but we actually say this together. And at the end, um, we're going to say amen together. And you probably don't know this because you just think it's what you say at the end of prayer. But amen is actually a word that means like I agree or I affirm that or I'm, I'm in, I'm down with this group. And so we're going to pray and then at the end you can say amen and then we're going to sing together and worship our God because that is who we are. Let's pray. Lord, um, for a lot of us, family is a painful thing. And that's just true. Like while we're talking here today, for a lot of us, family is a source of the most pain in our life. And for some of us, that actually is church. It's been a source of incredible pain for some of us. Maybe when we were younger, or maybe two weeks ago. But when we're in family, Lord, it's the hardest relationship that we have because we don't get to choose it. We get to choose our spouse. We get to choose our friends. But our family, our brothers and sisters, our mother, our fathers, our kids, we're stuck with them. And here at this church, sometimes we're stuck with each other. And sometimes that's painful. And what we want to actually ask today, God, is the grace of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We want to ask that you would allow us to see our opportunity to define ourselves by who you are, not by our last names, not by our national identities, not by the team that we support, not by the kind of music we listen to, but really by who you are. And Jesus, while you gave your life, we pray for the opportunity to serve others with our whole life. And we pray for real, honest conflict that people in our church will have. And we'll think, oh, we should, we should all get along. But we don't. We don't all get along in family. Sometimes we really disagree. Sometimes we really honestly hurt each other. And it's terrible. And we feel bad for it. But God, I pray that your grace would be in this place. That we would experience the opportunity to care for others. And we would experience the actual care of others. And that you would be glorified. And that you would count us family. God our Father, we pray this by your name. Amen.